1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show.
2: The biggest squeeze on household incomes for a generation as inflation soars to 7% and rents rocket.
3: What we're seeing is a record low in the number of properties available online to rent at any particular point in
1: time.
2: A child here dies from a mystery strain of hepatitis liver disease, which is baffling doctors worldwide, but parents are warned not
1: to panic. We've seen a similar pattern across Europe and the UK and Scotland, where there have been children identified with hepatitis and no no virus caused, and no other cause either. And Finland is set
2: to abandon its military neutrality to join NATO, but what does it mean for us here? And later, a look at all the other stories of the week, including Ireland in Eurovision action tonight. Do tweet us on hashtag tonight, VMTV. Well, it's now turning into the biggest squeeze on household incomes for a generation, as inflation here soars to 7% and food and fuel prices rocket. It's now officially the highest rise in the cost of living since the start of the millennium. First tonight, here's our economics correspondent Paul Colgan on the price pressure rising in our inflation nation.
0: Everyday life in Ireland has been getting more expensive as the months roll by. The last time we saw this sort of inflation, the country had just joined the euro and consumer spending was driving up prices. But this is different. Prices are rocketing due to reasons largely outside Ireland's control. Petrol increased by almost 24% in 12 months. Diesel by over 40. And home heating oil up a whopping 90% and utility bills have jumped dramatically. Electricity was up almost 28%, while gas bills increased by over half. Unfortunately, energy bills are likely to rise even further, as recent events in Ukraine are yet to be priced in. But one area of inflation that Ireland has been dealing with for years is as bad as ever. Accommodation. The latest daft survey of asking prices for rental properties showing a fresh increase. They were almost 12% higher in the first three months of this year compared to last. This means they were more than double what they were at the low point 11 years ago.
3: Yeah, What we're seeing is a record low in the number of properties available online to rent at any particular point in time. Even three years ago when the market wasn't blessed with an abundance of, of homes to rent, there were still between three and 4,000 homes nationwide. Now there are just 850 homes available to rent.
0: The European Central Bank is meanwhile getting ready to put up interest rates in an attempt to bring the inflation rate back under control. This could leave hundreds of thousands of Irish homeowners exposed to the sort of rate hikes they haven't seen in over a decade. The next part of the cost of living crisis. Paul Colgan, Virgin Media News.
2: Well, I'm joined tonight by Fine Gael TD Neil Richmond, Socialist Party TD Mick Barry, Broadcaster and journalist Alison O'Connor and Bauer Media Group political correspondent Sean Defoe. Uh, You are all very welcome to the programme. Neil, I'm going to start with you because running a home, renting a home, running a car, every single bill coming in the door skyrocketing. People are really hurting out there and there has been repeated calls from opposition for an emergency budget, that this is an emergency. Is it time that you listen to those calls?
4: I think you have to ask, what are we doing an emergency budget for? What is the purpose of the emergency budget? Will it make the substantial difference right in the here and now? Or if we look at the measures that have been taken for government, the 2.1 billion euro package from last year's budget and so forth, to make sure they take their course, and then of course that we come towards that we're already in the pre-budgetary cycle. We're already talking this with the Minister of Finance and my own party, and in due course, the Minister of Public Expenditure. We'll have our budget in October, but most of the decisions, it must be remembered, will be taken long before that in August. Of course it is accentuated the by decisions, external factors. Yeah,
2: the decisions will be taken in August, but will there be any further interventions between now and October?
4: Well, the minister has said that he hopes not, but we do see at a European level that there is potential for interventions. We talk about interest rates, but also in terms of how we deal with rising energy prices due to the war in Ukraine. But also that has a huge impact on rising commodities prices. So when we talk about the lack of housing supply, that's because materials are going up, timber is going up, getting gas and oil is obviously more expensive, everything that goes with that. So we're looking at the measures at a European level for sure. But there has been... With the European measure, you look at the ability of the EU to raise funds on the market to therefore provide grants to the extra member states. We've already seen that in response to Brexit. This week alone, 46 million euro was given to Irish fishermen because they've been impacted uh, by Brexit. It's all over about a 1.1 billion euro package. That's something new that Europe is doing in terms of raising its own funds. It happened in the pandemic. It happened in Brexit. It's making sure that Ireland can avail of that, but also where we have seen the inter. The EU say that it will intervene is as sanctions come in in the sixth round in terms of cutting off Russian gas and oil, that they will provide um, potential for funding for those most impacted, which obviously would be Germany and Poland and other countries, but that in turn will trickle down
5: to Ireland.
2: And Mick, you must be delighted to hear that. It sounds like there's more money coming for people.
5: Not nearly enough. I watched the package. It was interesting. And one word that wasn't mentioned, that should have been mentioned in my view, is profiteering. So let's have a look at this. The prices on the supermarket shelves going up and up week after week. Right? Tesco are about to record profits. 2020, 2021 for Britain and Ireland. 2.5 billion. Why isn't that part of the discussion? The uh, electricity and gas prices Bored gas sharing after skyrocketing. The parent company, Centrica, made 948 million pounds sterling Last year. Now that's robbery of the ordinary people to benefit the rich. Let's turn it around. Here's an idea. It, I,
2: make, I don't know if you can call it robbery of the ordinary well, people. Well I think
5: a lot of people out there would, but we, we can debate that. This is an idea, let me put this out, to reverse the trend. Right? Why don't we have a situation where the government would send a check out to every household in the state to assist those households in bridging the gap. All right.
2: Every single household, every person, no matter what wage is coming in the door,
5: you finance it by, by a wealth tax. I'll come to that in a second. Right? I would say two thousand euro for every household in the state, and here's how you fund it: you put a two percent tax on the richest five percent in the country, who own more than a million euro, leaving them a million euro for their home, but any million on top of that, that would raise five billion. The checks would cost you four billion reverse the trend instead of taking from the pockets okay, just, uh, of the ordinary uh, Neil, people. I just let
2: you in very quickly because I want to go to Alison. Yeah,
4: um, it sounds great, but wealth tax has been proven not to work. France did this a number of years ago. The people who earned that money just simply moved it offshore. It doesn't work. It sounds great on paper, okay. but in practice, they'll just get around it.
2: Um, Alison, I just want to move on because I suppose the cost of living crisis is a global emergency. We know that many of um, the things affecting Ireland are beyond the government's control. But our dysfunctional housing market uh, wasn't beyond their control, and that's a cost that Irish people uh, are suffering and um, you know having to you know deal with on a monthly basis that our European counterparts you know generally aren't.
6: Certainly, uh, to pick up on a point that I will agree with, you certainly do feel robbed when you're standing in the aisles of, uh, of supermarkets such as Tesco and others. I mean, that is just the inflation is noticeable on so many fronts particularly on that one the difficulty being then as we've been told from the start look this is it's a temporary thing it's a particular set of circumstances the war but you know it it's it's been shown that as people become used to inflation and think it's a permanent thing that even that psychology and that way of thinking makes it worse and that makes it more difficult for the government uh, in terms of how they're how they're going to plan and how after two years of a pandemic even we're talking about the effects of Brexit, they haven't been positive necessarily. I know that some businesses in the north are, have been doing very well, but I'm talking about the overall economic mood music. And now you have a war in Ukraine. So to go back to your question about housing, absolutely. Whether you're trying to buy a house or whether you're whether you're renting one and the price of of of, of the rent. Uh, that is exceptionally difficult and that any I mean it, it's it seems like a you know almost a boring thing to say but anything the government tries to do takes time and that people are really feeling the pinch right now
2: and the fear Sean is that the peak is yet to come isn't it mm. I mean that inflation is going to get higher and that we are going to have this interest rate hike uh, in the summer months.
3: Yeah, definitely. 9% is where the forecast is for inflation to peak this year. So we haven't seen the worst of it, unfortunately, yet. But I mean, to pick up what and said there about it taking time, yes, it does take time, but to, to be fair, there's been more than 10 years now of Fine and government, and uh, they did inherit a dumpster fire of a housing market from Fianna Fáil, to be fair. But I was at the launch of Rebuilding Ireland with Simon Coveney in 2016, at innumerable launches with Owen Murphy, have been at innumerable more with uh, Darrell O'Brien, and still it is harder than ever to buy a house in this country, and the rents are entirely putting people off. If there hadn't been a global pandemic, I think there would have been another wave of emigration. And availability when it comes
6: to renting at an all-time. I I I couldn't agree with you more. I suppose I'm more talking about the current housing for all. Oh, I know. Weekly with you that it goes back The problem is we've
3: been saying for years it's going to take years. So, you know, it started 2016 saying it'll take years and we're still in that situation.
6: Just on the
5: issue of housing now, there needs to be more discussion about the deadly combination for young workers who in many cases experience low pay or relatively low pay on the one hand and now sky high and rising rents on the other. I think an idea whose time has come is the idea of a bold increase in the national minimum wage, I would argue to €15 euro an hour, and I would ask the question as to why the leaders of the trade union movement in the country, are staying silent on this issue. They should be banging the table, shouting about this loud and campaigning. Do you campaigning. think
2: businesses out there after a pandemic and now with a war and the inflationary costs, we're seeing that they can afford €15 Euro an hour?
5: I think that very many businesses in this country can afford €15 Euro an hour. I think there are some that cannot. And Neil, they the, we'll the let Neil the, in the, there. The, 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 well, if I could just explain. the some that cannot Could get a top up the way that was done with COVID payments and say show us your plan to move to that within two years and we'll phase it out. But it's what's needed by young people and the union leaders should be campaigning for it.
2: And you don't think it would have an inflationary effect in itself?
5: I don't. I think that uh, or I think it would very much tend not to because what's been shown... All right, well let's let's let Neil back in there No, it's an important question. I'd like to just have a chance to briefly answer it, right? Uh, A rise in wages does not automatically equal the rise in prices. A rise in wages automatically equals a cut in profits. And there are plenty of companies out there that can afford it.
4: Neil. So 85% companies in the state are SMEs. They can't afford it. So you're talking about a huge market. People who are on the breadline had a very tough pandemic. Right. They're only recovering. But Most equally, SMEs can afford it. But when you talk about an, a, a massive increase, I've no problem actually with an increase in the minimum wage. And I think we will see that. But going up in too big a jump will definitely have an
5: inflation impact. 30 cent. Attack. It's an insult. All
2: right. Look, I want to just move on because there are fears of a full scale trade war between the EU and the UK over the latest Northern Ireland protocol crisis. A little earlier I spoke to political Europe journalist Suzanne Lynch about the diplomatic war of words and also Finland's dramatic move to abandon its neutrality and join NATO. Well first I asked her would this new crisis between London and Brussels lead to a trade war and what was the EU's response today?
7: but we're not there yet. Um, The EU have been careful to say that they're not going to be drawn into specifics until they get a specific development from the UK side. So there are threats of uh, domestic legislation being announced maybe next week in London about um, changing parts of the protocol. Uh, So I don't think we're going to get any specific statement by the EU how they would respond to that until they see this. They're not going to be kind of dragged into that. So the big question, of course, is Is this just a negotiation tactic? This is what happens with negotiations. You, you push it as far as you go to try and uh, extract concessions. So uh, the big talk this evening in Brussels is, is this a kind of a bluff? Is it just a negotiation tactic by the UK? Or are we going to see uh, legislation next week? If we are, well, then I can see this will click into a new level. And we will be seeing EU member states, which let's be honest, have not been thinking about Brexit, have not been talking about Brexit for the last few months. They've been focusing more on Ukraine. Uh, But I think if we see a move by the UK to introduce some kind of a bill next week, well, then it's going to get to member states level. There are going to be discussions between the Commission and the EU member states about what to do. And ultimately, that could lead to trade retaliation. Uh, moving on, Suzanne, to um,
2: Finland today, indicating that they are going to apply to join NATO. We've seen a real groundswell in support nationally there um, for this move. Is that all down to the fact that Russia has invaded Ukraine? And how has Russia responded to this um, this uh, announcement from Finland?
7: Yes, well I suppose the answer is yes, I think that is the reason. Russia's invasion of in Ukraine has dramatically changed the public mood in Finland. Um, a po- polls a year ago put support maybe down at 20% in some polls now it's up at 76%. So there's been a huge change in public opinion there. Um, the, the parliament the Finnish parliament, even though we had this announcement today by the President of the Prime Minister uh, the Finnish parliament does have to vote on that and we're expecting that on Monday or Tuesday. But look, it's it's they're going to give a green light to this and we expect Sweden this weekend to come out with a similar statement, and then um, next month is a big NATO summit at Madrid, and that looks like it's going to be the moment where uh, they, you know, this this happens. Now, the issue for Finland and Sweden is what happens in the period in between when they apply for membership and when they're admitted, because all, EU, all NATO members, all 30 NATO members do have to ratify this. Um, so it's been interesting over the last few days. We've seen a lot of NATO allies, Britain, the US less vocally, but it happening behind the scenes, assuring Finland and Sweden that they will step in and help them if there is any, uh, any threat from Russia. Uh, to answer your question there, yes, Russia has has responded quite forcibly, vocally at least today. It's warned of a, a response. Um, I've been speaking to Finnish politicians, MEPs, who say, look, they were expecting this. Um, one issue they may see over the next few weeks and months is some kind of hybrid attack and maybe cyber warfare. Um, also, maybe incursions of Russian, you know, Russian planes into their airspace that kind of thing so I think Finland is prepared for that Uh, they've got the backing of the other countries but yes I mean I think this war in Ukraine there's a huge irony here of course I mean Vladimir Putin has now helped to bring about something he feared which is the expansion of NATO and now a country that shares a 1300 kilometer border with Russia Finland is now going to join NATO this is not what uh, Vladimir Putin
2: wants. No, it certainly backfired on him. Uh, Suzanne Lynch, thank you for your time this evening. We'll leave it there. Thank you. Uh, Neil Richmond, I just want to start uh, with this crisis over the protocol again and the comments from Liz Trust today that internal peace and security within the UK, she said, is at risk if this protocol isn't looked at. Um, do you agree with those comments from her?
4: No, this whole process is a stunt, mainly driven by Liz Trust to deal with internal Tory politics. It's this is a
2: total red herring?
4: I don't think it's a red herring, but I think it's very high level political game playing with something which is so se- sensitive. At the end of the day, no one was talking about the protocol in Westminster for the last number of weeks and months. They were focused on loads of different domestic things, plenty of domestic scandals. And what we see is once again a reversion from the usual suspects that if in doubt, let's pick her out with Brussels. There was good concrete discussions going on since Liz Truss took over as lead negotiator from Lord Frost. Since January onwards, we've seen the EU had legislated to ensure that Northern Ireland could continue to have access to medicines. We saw the EU produce a paper in October which would have reduced checks by 80%. And bear in mind, the checks are pretty limited as is. But now we see the grassroots of the Conservative Party getting edgy, Liz Truss trying to see her moment. It's absolutely brazen, it's blatant, and it just goes to show the absolute contempt that so many people in this Tory party take their closest partners for at a really delicate time in global politics.
2: Uh, Alison, do you believe Boris Johnson when he says next week? I think it was reported in the Times this week that next week they could look to introduce uh, legislation that would, you know, in effect, scrap parts of this protocol. Do you believe that threat?
6: If Boris Johnson told me it was raining outside, I would open the window and look to see. You know, I don't. I don't believe daylight from the man, and I agree with everything Neil has just said. I think it's entirely self-serving. I think politically, it's very interesting to hear the rawness of the language, if you like, that we're hearing from from this side, from the Taoiseach, from from, from Simon Coveney, and you you can it's it's it's. Things have to be at a pretty extreme level when things are said that bluntly, and you can understand why they are because they are they are that extreme. And I mean, even the fact there's a story up in the Guardian this evening that um, a group of U.S. congressmen are coming over. Uh, Richie Neal is heading that up, long long association with um, Irish American politics. And I mean, you're looking at a trade deal at risk at risk there. I mean, there is so much. This is. I mean, it's But it a, doesn't
2: seem. I mean, this threat from uh, Joe Biden that perhaps you know the trade deal could be off the table with the UK. It doesn't seem to have any impact on Boris
6: Johnson. Yes, but I mean, I suppose. Well, we've never we've seen so much hot air. So from Boris Johnson over the time, so much da- so much really bad damage done. I mean, if there is any threat to the peace and security of of the North, it has been entirely, to my mind been caused by Boris Johnson and the decisions that he has made and the really, the, the sort of damaging and almost um, the relationship that goes on between the DUP and, and, and Boris Johnson, where no matter what Boris Johnson does, the DUP keeps believing him the next time that it is going to be better and he is going to be better, better behaved. But we've seen how that has damaged the North and that the Assembly is going to meet tomorrow now and the DUP uh, will refuse, uh, you know, a, a nomination and all of that very seriously Stuff that puts the situation in the North in a very precarious way. But I think we have to face the fact that Boris Johnson deals with a very different deck of cards to all of the rest of us. He doesn't seem to see the seriousness of things, or if he does, his own best interests always. Trump, that unbelievable as that may be. And we're going to discuss that a little later in the programme. I just want to move on to um, Finland
2: announcing that they are going to apply to join NATO. It appears that that is going to happen. Ireland now, uh, Sean, one of only four member states. In the EU um, that is not a member of NATO. Um, the Taoiseach has been asked about this before and he said, look, we will have a debate on our neutrality, but this isn't the right time. Do you think with these moves now from um, Finland that that's going to change?
3: Yeah, Well, I think it's going to be sped up, definitely. It's, it's something that we didn't think we'd ever have to really think about and now there's real strong questions to be answered because it, you wouldn't have thought Sweden and Finland, they've had that same sort of weird relationship with neutrality that we've had where they're you know neutral on paper but not political Neutral as, as the Tishik likes to put it, but you're seeing much more of a fracturing now since this war started and people going into hard lines. You
2: see it with the vote, even in Northern Ireland, you're seeing it in other
3: countries around the world. People are dividing into camps. And Which we're a huge
2: support, I suppose, uh, in Finland among the public for this move into NATO, and you don't necessarily. No, see that I, here.
3: Don't, I don't think that would be here. And we're geographically in a very different uh, situation. We're not uh, imminent risk of invasion by Russia, whereas they conceivably could be. Obviously, they've got Estonia as well, uh, kind of as a border there, also in NATO. So it's something we'll have. to certainly think about, but I don't think Irish people will be jumping into the same bandwagon just because the actual imminent threat doesn't apply to us. Sean is right.
5: Sean is right. There's been a big shift of opinion in Finland. uh, And it it simply hasn't happened here. There's been small change, but not anywhere near the kind of change that the government parties would have wanted. 70% of Irish people, according to a recent poll, are opposed to the idea of joining NATO. And there's there's good reason for it. They know that if there's... um, a war being fought, Russia, Finland, blood being shed, what have you, that it's not going to be the fortunate sons or the fortunate daughters of government ministers who are asked to go and shed their blood. It'll be young people from Granabraha, young people from Kulak, young working class people. That has always been the case in wars. And it's one of the reasons why there is such strong opposition in this country to the idea well, I think,
2: yeah, yeah, I make, I think of... I, stretch, in fairness, you know, I think everybody's entitled to go and join the defence forces if they want, no matter who your mother or your father is, let's be honest.
5: Yeah, people are joining the defence forces on, 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 of a neutral okay. country are you, at, the, at the, you're the effectively moment. You're
6: saying that we would, in that scenario, we would have conscription based on your annual wage. You're above a threshold, you're OK. Below a threshold, you're in, you're conscripted.
5: No, what I'm saying no, is that is what, what you implied. No, I tell you what I'm saying is that people join the defence forces at the moment of a country that is militarily neutral. Right, And if you join NATO, it's a mutual defence pact. One country is attacked, yep. you, come to, you come to their aid. And I repeat the point. It will not be the sons and daughters of okay, the wealthy people in this country. It will be the sons and daughters from ordinary working class homes who are asked to go and, and put their uh, lives on the line.
2: Neil, you've said our policy of political, um, or military neutrality is morally degenerate.
4: Well, that was actually an article in the Irish Times that I merely tweeted. But I do disagree with our policy of military neutrality and myself and Mick have debated this quite a few times. We have completely different opinion and I think it unlike the Taoiseach, I think now is absolutely the time we need to discuss it because I'm not necessarily in favour of us joining NATO, but what we're going to see is that European, the European Union will look for greater cooperation when it comes to security and defence. And we have countries. But well,
2: we've signed up, have we not, to greater cooperation? In to Europe. an
4: extent, we've opted out of quite a bit. We opted out both in the Lisbon and Nice Treaty. We got guarantees. We also have opted out of certain elements of PESCO. And throughout. But have we not we,
2: signed up to this new Strategic Compass? That the Strategic about? Compass.
4: Yes, that's part of it. But that isn't the full cooperation. Again, as Mick says, we, we haven't signed up for the same level of agreement on defence spending. We, we spend about 02 to 0.5% on our defence forces. To join NATO, you have to um, spend 2%, which Finland already does. And yes, we have a geographic luxury. Um, Finland's been invaded by Russia before. They know what it's like. It's fairly, fairly miserable. But we've been attacked by Russia too. Our, that cyber attack. And if we look at the evolution of hybrid warfare, and if we look at not only our responsibilities of solidarity to you know, our allies... Now. I think we need to have this debate and I think we need to be realistic and tell the people, what does neutrality mean? It doesn't mean conscription of working class people. Equally, it doesn't mean that we have to participate in every war. But we can't just say we're neutral, we're therefore never going to be attacked.
2: Yeah, Alison, do you think we are a little bit naive because we think in Ireland, look, the threat isn't a physical one because of our geography. But the threat, as you say, has come perhaps from, you know, that cyber attack or uh, Russian military, you know, uh, planning these uh, exercises off the coast of Ireland, the threat is still there.
6: Yeah, I do. I even think personally, I was a bit naive, and even before the war, when you looked at them with the Russian military exercises and the and the fishermen, and realising that how ill-equipped we were, even to have if that had gone ahead to monitor it, um, and that even if we even outside of NATO membership, that there are so many other things that that could be done. I think that come the autumn, we should start having this discussion, and I think it actually is perfect for citizens assembly actually to, to my mind and I think that's that's a very good way for Could us I to tra- do it. all right no I'm Could sorry tra-
2: I'm sorry Mick we're actually we've run out of time on this particular um subject but I'm sure we will come back to it at a later date uh, my panel is staying with me uh, next more on that tragic death of a young child here from a mysterious strain of hepatitis which has baffled doctors worldwide stay with us. very welcome back well my panel is still here with me Fine Gael TD Neil Richmond Socialist Party TD McBarry broadcaster and journalist Alison O'Connor, and Byron Media Group political correspondent Sean Defoe. I'm also joined by infectious disease expert Professor Sam McConkey for more on the death of a child here from a mysterious strain of hepatitis liver disease, which is affecting a very small number of children here in Ireland. Uh, Sam, it is causing, I think, real alarm uh, among parents, and it is a small number of children who have been affected. Um, how is this illness impacting them?
8: So we found out from the UK uh, in mid-April that they had noticed um, several dozens of young children, mostly under 10, typically between one and six years, who start getting sick, feeling tired, then yellow eyes, the yellow jaundice and fever. and. When they had some blood tests done, the liver cells were all bursting open and the liver cells were failing, leading to inflammation of the liver, hepatitis. And unfortunately, in several cases, needing a liver transplant and a number of cases around the world uh, have also led to death, as very sadly, uh, one person in Ireland, we're told, today has passed away. And nobody yet really understands the cause of this. It's now been reported, Ciara, to WHO from more than 12 countries and there are more than 320 cases So many countries, USA, Britain, and many European countries are trying to find the cause of this. Several possibilities. One is that it's a toxin, so it could be a uh, something in the food chain that's causing a problem. So detailed questionnaires about food and what chemicals people have been exposed to. Second possibility is it's a new virus, uh, a new hepatitis, if you like, a hepatitis H. They've been looking for hepatitis A, B, C, D, and E in these folk, and none of them appear to have those old viral causes. But it could be a new virus. And the, the third possibility, which has been explored, is very interesting that perhaps because of the COVID social distancing that we've all suffered from in the last two years, these children are being infected with a common virus, maybe like adenovirus, that normally children get at a young age, in this case because of social distancing, perhaps delayed or deferred for a couple of years, and then it affects them in a more serious way. That's not proven yet. It's a hypothesis, but it's one of the possible explanations.
2: And I did hear a couple of uh, reports today that people were wondering would there be a link to the COVID virus itself? Has that been ruled out?
8: So a small number of the children who've got the hepatitis did have evidence of COVID infection, SARS-CoV-2, of course, with the PCR test and the antigen test. But as I think everyone of your listeners knows, there's been huge rates of infection uh, with the COVID virus, not just in Ireland, but in America and in Britain, in both adults and children over the last three months. So you would expect because we're in the tail end of a pandemic of COVID, that a certain number would have had COVID-19. That seems to be quite a minority and not above and beyond what you would expect to have COVID, given the fact that COVID's been very substantially affecting the whole population in Ireland. I will say it's definitely not the COVID vaccine. It appears that in Britain, none of the children there had the COVID vaccine because many are are too young for it. So it's, it's definitely not linked to COVID vaccine. And it seems to me the rate of COVID in the children with hepatitis is very similar to the rate of COVID in the rest of the population and not elevated.
2: As I said, we don't want to alarm parents. We want to reassure them, but at the same time, people need to be aware of what they can look out for. For you, the biggest symptom is sort of the yellowing of the eyes, is
8: it? Well, that's the most unusual and dramatic thing. Children who get sick often lie around and don't play, they don't eat, they get lethargy and tiredness. Specifically with liver failure, children can get uh, dark urine, uh, brown pigmented urine and and light coloured poo. Uh, They they can also get an itchiness, uh, scratching all over uh, and just muscle aches, bone aches, tiredness headache, fatigue, not eating and some of the children in the UK had diarrhoea and vomiting. So the symptoms have been very diverse initially and then at a more later advanced stage tends to have the yellow eyes and the itchiness. So I think it is a rare condition, 320 kids sounds like an awful lot but that's in a population of all of Europe and all of America. So you know, compared to things like asthma or anxiety or depression or back pain or the other serious conditions in children, uh, this is a very rare condition but uh, as you described it has been very very serious for a small number of those children so it is something to look out for and seek medical attention if you're worried about it.
2: Uh, Professor Sam McConkey, uh, thank you for that advice and that update. Uh, Alison look nobody wants to worry any parent out there but the truth of the matter is when you hear of a story like this and you hear about a poor family here who have lost a child to, uh, to this illness it is stressful for parents.
6: Oh my goodness, listening to Sam there, it makes your blood run cold, you know. Um, And uh, younger children, particularly, can have so many different ailments, you know, and that start off in a more general way. Uh, So I'm sure there's parents all over the country, you know, watching their kids, really. And I suppose it's in the general thing of just the sense of our own mental health. This thing, you're coming out of COVID, we've wars, and you think, oh my God, now here's something else. And just the heartbreak of that family and I'm sure the absolute suddenness of it mm. um, you know it's, certainly yeah, to it's dreadful to contemplate um, I just want to move on to
2: a story that's really dominated uh, this week and possibly next week again which is this National Maternity Hospital Neil Richmond what is Cabinet going to do next Tuesday? Um I
4: imagine that they'll probably approve this. Um, I imagine that they'll push forward. I'm not certain of that. Um, I've raised my concerns today in the Dáil. I raised them with Minister Stonnelly. I still have remaining concerns. I very much want this project to go up. Um, but we do have we had an opportunity in the door today uh, at committee and then there's going to be a lengthy press conference tomorrow. Um, and what are your remaining
2: concerns?
4: Well, where I raise two concerns in particular, um, and they're different concerns than perhaps other have, the first is this term clinically appropriate. Um, so in fairness to Minister Donnelly today, it was raised by quite a few deputies, opposition and government, about is there the possibility of an addendum to ensure that every procedure can be uh, guaranteed. Uh, And the second one, and it's quite a personal love concern, is that the possibility of getting full transparency in terms of the letter from the Vatican Church uh, to the Sisters of Charity that allowed them release this land for the lease. Those are just my two personal ones. um, And they're driven by the sheer amount of correspondence I've had into my office from not campaigners. And if you
2: don't get that, will you support this hospital?
4: I I would be hopeful of getting that, to be honest.
2: you think you're going to get
5: a letter from the Vatican before next no no Tuesday. sorry
4: no I'll be clarify in terms of the addendum and in terms of the detailed list so that's the major one for me the letter of the Vatican I think there should be a lot of people should always put out that, that we're looking for transparency I'll be right mix I don't expect a letter from the Vatican to be published but it wouldn't necessarily you know, it's not me who's going to support this, it's Cabinet, most importantly. Um, Those are the two issues for me. And as I said, they're all on the back from a lot of representation from women into my office, in my area, who I just know personally and they have very understandable concerns.
2: Uh, Alison, you're not one of those women who has concerns about this hospital. You feel a lot of the opposition to this has been quite opportunistic.
6: I think that, yes, I think some of it is. But I, and I, but I think, as Neil just said, I think there is a lot of concern there. And I'm not surprised because there's an awful lot of misinformation and some of it very deliberately fed out. But I would say, even in terms of Neil saying, looking for a Vatican letter, the relevancy of that is gone because the nuns are gone do you know what I mean So that that's so that the Vatican doesn't come into play anymore um, I suppose I've watched I was watched the health committee yesterday, the health committee this evening the minister and the doll um, I've seen with all of those witnesses and all of and some very thorough questioning I think it was a very good example of a doll committee uh, at work I saw no smoking gun it is a complex. Contract without a doubt would be far better if it wasn't, but that's the way it is. Indeed, it would be better if St. Vincent said, Here, you can have the ground. They're unwilling to do so. But I at no time saw, heard any smoking gun, anything that's any gotcha moment of, you know, there, there, we told you. Nothing nothing like that. All right. And I'll but end what? on this point. I'll end on this point. Peter Boylan uh, was a witness this evening, and this evening, uh, Dr. Peter Boylan, the former master of Hollow Street. A long term. Critic of this. A long-term critic of it. Uh, so either this evening or at any other time, and he was asked this evening, could he explain how the Vatican would go about doing this? Literally, how they would how they would do it? What they would would they set? set how would they set it in motion? This thing that it's the law of the land. Every practically staff member in Hollister, you know, the whole lot, all the people, all of Peter Boylan's you know, former colleagues, now current colleagues, midwives, nurses, doctors, the whole lot, all for it, you know, how the Vatican would stop them performing procedures like abortions. He does not have an answer for that. I'll tell you a story, Kira.
5: I'll tell you a story from today. That your news bulletin earlier on had the Debenhams workers at the gates of the doll. I brought them in afterwards for a meal. We went into the restaurant and we had a meal. Great to see them. I had not seen some of them in a year. And this topic came up. I didn't make a speech in it. I asked them, do you... Would you, would you vote for this next Tuesday? Or are you dissatisfied with what the government is saying? And we went around the table, all right? Now, these are not teenagers. They're not women who are in their early 20s. They're mothers. They've reared families. Some of them are grandmothers. And they
2: didn't support it.
5: They did not support it. They're not convinced by the government. And not because... It's an important point, I think. Not because of so-called misinformation. They were very well informed. Okay. They, they knew that a company set up by the nuns would own the land. Yeah, and we, did,
2: we saw that in the Sunday Independent. They, didn't, bit, didn't, li- we, that there they didn't like
5: that. Public support. They knew that a company set up by the nuns would have three representatives on the board of the hospital, all right? And they said, look, we've seen too much in our lifetime. The church and the state there should be a complete separation, and here. they don't buy they, that. There is. They, they don't buy what the government is saying, um, and some Sean, of them are coming. And some of them are coming, I think, on the protest on Saturday as well.
2: Okay, Sean. The government seem to have got the messaging around this, you know quite wrong, I think, didn't they? They certainly I think, didn't predict um, the level of opposition there was going to be to this project when it was announced uh, again last Monday week. Is there still, you know, potential calamity for the government here?
3: Well, there, even in the announcement of it, it's almost come unstuck because they came out at the very start and said, well, we're going to have two weeks to explain this to you because you just don't understand how good a deal this is really is. And then, But we're not going to change anything. We're not going to do any major changes to it. So from the start, it was a condescending tone. Now, I think, to be fair, in the last few days, the, the Health Minister, as, as Neil was saying today they it have been out. To tweaks they have agreed to some tweaks I thought the most interesting today was when Stephen Donnelly was being questioned by Roshan Shorthall and he was asked about could there be changes um, to, to that word about clinically appropriate could you provide an addendum and he said yes that wouldn't amount to a major uh, tweak but take it out Take it out. You heard Simon O'Garr also before the committee this evening. It doesn't need to be there. If you say all legally permissible, all right. uh, that would solve a huge amount of the problems and a huge amount of the opposition, the but added, the handling has been The added political difficult.
6: complication for me as well is that Fine Gael, have, and and I, I believe Neil's issues are, are, are genuine. But Finnegale has also been trying to make fall out to be Holy Marys in the middle of all of this. And that has added, that has added complications. And it great intentions. <laughs> yeah. And where are the greens? <laughs> all right.
2: Uh, look, my thanks to Neil and Mick. We're going to have to leave it there. But I'm sure we will return to that topic next week. Alison and Sean are staying with me for more of the big talking points of the week including Ireland. Well, we have failed, unfortunately, to make the Eurovision Song Contest final. Robbery, stay with us. Now, for our look at the big news stories of the week so far, Alison and Sean are still here with me and we're also joined by the Sunday independence, Donald Lynch. Donald, you're very welcome to the programme. I'm going to start with you and the elections in Northern Ireland and the stalemate up there. I was looking at the comments of Edwin Poots last night saying, basically, unless the protocol is dealt with, there's going to be elections there every six months, which will ultimately, it appears, lead to nothing if the protocol isn't uh, changed. Could this... Position backfire on the DVP, do you think?
9: Well, I mean, it could backfire in that it makes them look like they're, they, they, they are against something that they could have gotten in that they, they could have... Theresa May said to Geoffrey Donaldson in Parliament that they, they could have gotten the protocol if they had voted for her deal under Brexit. I mean, they look like a, a party that's imploding. And I mean, it does look like we're on our way to some sort of border poll coming in up in the next few years. They've said it could be less than five years away. So, I mean, it has absolutely backfired on them.
6: Do you think that border poll is less than five years away, Alison? Do you think it's that imminent? Yeah, it kind of intrigues me at the moment, actually, this idea that, okay, it's a while before we have our election if it goes as scheduled. But if, as we think, you know, Sinn Féin does really well, uh, and they are saying, I know, I know that Mary Lou MacDonald tempered that during the, the campaign in the North, but it's back to business as usual now. Um, this idea, because if you look at the opinion polls, people will say there's the virtue signalling of, oh yeah, I want a united Ireland. But then you ask the question, will you pay for it? Will you change the national anthem? All of that. It's no, no, and no. So how Sinn Féin, they're talking about a citizens', citizens assembly, but I think they have an awful lot of work. They haven't really fleshed out how they would do that or how they would bring people along with them and how they would convince people to to foot the bill for that. So whether that would take... I mean, Sinn Féin is going to come in and the first thing that people are going to want Sinn Féin to do is to sort out the housing situation. And I think if Sinn Féin says to people, no, our priority priority. is that's not going to be good electorally and not going to be at all popular. So it is going to be... I'm not saying they don't have a plan. Sinn Féin is very clever. They will have a plan. But I think they're going to have to show pragmatism for that. their major political project because people are putting their faith... And, I mean, a very high degree of faith, you could say, like, how will they, how will they meet that that level of expectation. Uh, But that's what people will expect from them if they're in government. Uh,
2: One of the other very interesting things to come out of that election, uh, Sean, was the growth of the centre, particularly, as was the growth of the Alliance Party. And there was a very interesting piece by Jonathan Powell, the uh, chief British negotiator in Northern Ireland back in the 90s. Uh, He wrote this week that that could signal the normalisation of Northern Irish politics, the start of it. I think he probably tempered it and said there's a long way Mm. to go. But he also said that maybe... You know, there was going to to be a time where we needed to look at the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement and this idea that power sharing between the DUP and Sinn Féin, this unwilling alliance, and we see how unwilling they are at the moment, that perhaps that's going to have to go.
3: Yeah, I was listening to Jim Allister and it was probably the first ever time I've agreed with Jim Allister of the TUV uh, before the election when he was saying this isn't working because heading into it, uh, people in Northern Ireland had no opportunity to vote out a government if they didn't like it. It was going to be the same makeup of people and there is no actual opposition. And I think maybe the alliance is, is starting to shift towards that. But the overall vote, if you look at it, is still fairly similar. There wasn't a huge increase or decrease for Republican versus unionism. It's still about 40-40 and 20 of another. So I think we are still a little bit away from that. But looking at the stru- of Northern Ireland for, is it four or five of the last six or seven years? It hasn't had a government. There have been long periods. It hasn't functioned. It hasn't functioned at all. It doesn't work in the way it is. But what's the alternative is the big question this was set up to to provide an, an imperfect solution um, to a real problem in the 90s we're coming up to 30 years on 25 years on i suppose and um, 30 years on is when bertie hearn has talked about maybe having that border poll time i think that's probably too soon because there's a lot that has to be worked out between now and then. i
6: do think though in terms of the the alliance party and listening to naomi Along, sometimes there's that sense of ideas whose time has come uh, and, and she, she puts forward a very compelling narrative. Now I know we've just discussed how entrenched it, it, things are. But there is, even though I know, as Sean says, you look at the numbers and you're thinking, mm, it's not that different. But there is a sense there of, a of change, of a shift, of all those people who we have been hearing about who, ident- who do not identify as Unish and Nationalists. They say we're Northern Irish, or you know. And um, that, that, I think that, that group is growing and I I think it will feed
3: in. I think one of the big problems it's going to have, and Naomi Long had to address this during the campaign, was saying that what's their position on a border poll going to be? They don't have one at the minute, Mm. they're very down the centre, and they're kind of pulling from every camp, but at some point, as she's admitted, at some point they'll have to form a a position, and that's trouble.
2: Uh, Donald, I just want to move on to uh, the warnings from Irish Water. It's only the beginning of May um, that there is going to be pressure on our water supplies this summer, Uh, and I want to also look at, I suppose, the climate conference that was in Dublin uh, today, and the warning that Eight and a half thousand buildings in Dublin are potentially going to be compromised as a result of coastal flooding by mm. two thousand one hundred, if nothing is done about uh, climate change. Yeah,
9: well, it's it's one of those things where I feel like we're kind of addicted to these doomsday stories. We sort of feed off them, and in the abstract, we are really concerned about climate change and, and what happens with it. But you know, when you burrow down into what people want to do about it. That's where where we come up against. And I mean, when, when specific scenarios are put to people and they're asked if they want to do things like reduce the national herd or for energy to be to be taxed um, more meaningfully, people don't- Stop cutting people your turf. People, yeah, the turf. Mm-hmm. Pe- people, people don't want that. And, and I the T-shirt
2: very much alluded to that today, didn't he? Yeah, he said, there's too many who are still oblivious to climate change and too much, I think the word he uses is whataboutery. Like, what are we doing here in Ireland? that you know, we're such a small contributor in comparison to polluters like India or China.
9: Yeah, but I mean if everyone took that that um, stance what what can be done? I mean when when it's 70 years in the future and Ireland is as you say underwater and the temperature has risen by a few degrees, I mean is that what we look back and say we did that we, that we sort of indulged in this kind of water battery? And I mean even now, I mean the things that they're suggesting and the measures that they're going to take Will they even be impact enough? I mean, there is probably a kind of a conflict between what we consider economic growth and making things better, and meaningfully addressing climate change. and I don't know whether whether, we're even at the races of having that discussion.
2: Um, I just want to move on. Um, Devastation here this evening, Alison. (laughs) We have not qualified for the Eurovision final once again. And can I say, I did watch Brooks Gullion's performance of That's Rich uh, before we came on air and I thought she knocked it out of the park.
6: She was super. She really was super. And I, But I was kind of surprised. When you, you told us about this uh, a couple of moments ago, I was surprised at the level of disappointment I felt. Um, Let's be honest, it was shared two, across the studio I have floor. two junior viewers at home, and I know they will be very disappointed. So it is, it is getting to the stage where it feels like we're picked, being picked on, doesn't it? That no matter who went on our behalf that we just wouldn't I mean who's to we need Adrian Kavanaugh I think uh, uh. from from Maynooth the, the Maynooth geographer to explain the politics to us but, I or mean, to it's, send back Johnny Logan or something or to uh. something I don't know I don't know I don't know what the answer to this is but I mean given we, we were talking earlier wars, pestilence, famine everything we needed uh, the Eurovision, didn't it we? It would have been a nice boost. I uh, just
3: hope Europe supports us more on the protocol than they ever do with Eurovision. Like, you know, because we <laughs> never go, I'm gutted, Derry Lipa, she was great. Yeah. You know, this real pop song, I thought this was going to be fantastic. And no, we can't, even, can't get in with ballads, we can't get in yeah, with no. pop songs.
6: Or with the turkeys. I or mean, with the
3: gendered is our best yeah. finish the, to the last the 30 years. The
6: good thing, I suppose, Donald, is I
2: think everybody knows Ukrainian. Ukraine are going to walk this Eurovision and I don't think yeah. going to Yeah, I mean, the
9: major point of the Eurovision, you said it's the geopolitics, has to be sticking one to Putin, and, and you know, it's uh, it, that involves you know Ukraine obviously winning, and then the fact that the whole thing is obviously a gigantic LGBT expo, and given all the laws he's made, that's also sort of sticking up two fingers at him. So. Either way, I think it's it's good for the wacky races of music and uh, bad for Putin.
2: <laughs> and it's the diversion it's I think we all need. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you to my panel this evening. We're going to have to leave it there tonight. Uh, we want to leave you, though, with a picture of the massive black hole called Sagittarius A that was discovered at the heart of our own Milky Way galaxy by a team of scientists, including some researchers based here in Ireland. Incredible. Now, from all of the late team here, good night. Take care.
1: of Virgin Media Originals podcast series.